Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about abortion and single-issue voting. And joining me to discuss this, we have Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College in Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, doing well, doing well. And we have Brandon Hurlbert, who is a PhD candidate in Old Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Brandon? It's great. Looking forward to it. And we have Tim McNutt, who is a Doctor of Ministry student at Northern Seminary and a postulate training for holy orders in the Episcopal Church. How's it going, Tim? Hey, doing good, John. And we have a special guest today. We have Jenny Riley, who is a PhD candidate in theology at Durham University, focused on the relationship between evangelical Christianity and medical practice. How's it going, Jenny? Hi, it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your research? Sure. So a PhD candidate is a a kind of old identity. I submitted my thesis about a month ago. Uh, So it's been a labor of love for the last three, four years. Um, I decided I wanted to work on the relationship between religion and medicine just after I finished my undergraduate degree. And I've now done it. So there you go. Tick box. Abortion isn't the only thing. Uh, that I comment on in my thesis. That's quite important to me. Uh, It's much broader than that. I talk about all sorts of uh, much more mundane things like the fact that doctors struggle to get to church if they've just done a 12-hour shift. But abortion ended up being uh, one of several significant ethical issues that I talked to um, evangelical Christians uh, of kind of all stripes in the UK about. Um, They ranged from second-year medical students right up to people who recently retired, um, including some people who worked in medicine just briefly before abortion was legalised in England and Wales, which was 1963. And I feel able to have this conversation because I've spoken with them, because I've had difficult conversations with people about difficult issues, not because it's ever been a personal experience of mine. And I think that's probably an important thing to say at the beginning. I'm a woman, I'm married, but I don't have children. I don't have any experience of abortion firsthand. And I want to approach this issue with yeah, sufficient caution and awareness of where I'm coming from. I come at this from an academic perspective. I hope a reasonably empathetic understanding academic perspective, but it's not a complete perspective. No one ever has a complete perspective. But yeah, I have other people's stories that I found fascinating, powerful to reflect on for myself and I think for the academic world. So we'll see about that in the Viva. And it's given me a very different perspective than I think I would have had three years ago. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, As the non-Americans in this group, uh, I I find it it, it interesting that you've chosen to do your uh, thesis on that intersection of evangelicalism and medicine. Um, For those who aren't aware, my wife is a medical doctor. Uh, she's a, now in general practice, but uh, as you rightly noted, uh, getting to church after a 12-hour shift, or for that matter, when you finish a 12-hour shift at midnight and uh, you have a 10 a.m. Uh, church service, it's, it's kind of brutal uh, on people. Uh, and I think, and I'd really, I'm really interested in, in the outcomes of your thesis. I'd love to read it one day. Uh, but I'm interested in your perspective as, as a Brit. I mean, Looking on from Australia, some of the uh, conversations that are had in America about uh, healthcare, about uh, the place of single issue voting and abortion is one of the big ones. But healthcare in general, for, for me here in Australia, uh, where we have a relatively universal healthcare system, and from having lived in the UK with the NHS, everyone criticizes, seems to criticize the NHS. Uh, you know, it takes weeks to get an appointment. 
But at the same time, when I was in SBL last time we were in Boston, one of my colleagues got sick and had quite severe gastro and needed to have an IV drip. And that cost her $10,000, mostly paid for by insurance. But it just brings into stark relief for me that the conversation that, that we seem to be having uh, in Australia, in the UK, is of orders of magnitude different from that which is happening in the US. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts, having done some more thinking about that from an academic perspective. Yeah, sure. And I was reflecting on this earlier today. Yeah, between the NHS, single issue voting, and probably the discourse around abortion, although slightly more complicated on that third one, the UK and America couldn't be more different. I've never had the pleasure of going to Australia. I can only imagine that it's uh, different there as well. But yeah, we do have universal health care. I think I can probably go ahead and say that the NHS saved my life. I needed my appendix whipping out and they could just do it. And it didn't cost me or my parents a penny. Excellent. I love the NHS. Yeah, single issue voting from a British perspective, certainly until Brexit was completely absurd. Um, I'm not sure I was politically aware before Brexit. That was kind of a catalyst. I was also quite young at the time. But the idea that abortion, something that is generally seen as either a done deal or something that you don't really talk about by most people, like my research participants were a little bit different. Hopefully we'll get to that. The idea that that could dictate which party you vote for, it's not laughable because it's not funny, but it is very, very foreign. And so, yeah, the NHS and the UK were very specific contexts in which I needed to situate my, my thesis because I'm hoping to go to AAR virtually at some point. That's the dream. I'd have loved to go to Boston, but here we are in Brighton instead. And I'm very conscious that I'm talking about abortion from a very British perspective in an American context. And fortunately, I was blessed at Durham with uh, many American colleagues, Brandon among them, who were very good at kind of going, have you thought about this from an American perspective? And the answer to that really is no, but I have thought about the fact that it's coming from a British perspective, um, where abortion is a very different shape and size of problem. It's a problem, but it's a very different shape and size of one to, I think, the US. Yeah, in America, obviously, as our conversations, Jenny, uh, have shown that, you know, abortion is this hot topic because when from an evangelical or more Christian or more conservative standpoint, you know, abortion wholesale, flat out, just equals murder. You are killing babies. And obviously from a different perspective is that, no, if you if you don't support abortion, then you clearly hate women. I think both of these kind of labels, I, I don't think are very fair, but I think in our conversations, you've kind of hinted at some stories that you've heard from doctors. And I wondered if you can share some of those stories or at least part of those stories that you're allowed to share that might kind of reframe the very incendiary labels on abortion and maybe might help us think differently about abortion. Yeah, I'll do what I can. And I think that's important because actually, as it happens, the paper I'm hoping to take to AAR is all about why that binary, pro-life, pro-choice, or if you prefer, killing babies versus hating women, why that just collapses for me in reality. I say for me, for the people I've interviewed. So I interviewed 25 people and all of them would describe themselves as evangelical reasonably comfortably some of them are kind of more academic about it than others fine at the end of the day if there was an evangelical label on the church they'd probably identify with it now within that 25 people i had everything from someone who had willingly and regularly helped women have abortions and one who'd known someone very close to her who'd had one 
and had reconciled herself with that. To someone on the other end of the spectrum, if you like to call it a spectrum, I think spectrum is at least more helpful than a binary, who is about as close to abortion is murder that I've ever met in the UK. As far as she was concerned, abortion was taking away a life that God has created, going against the idea that God bestows his image in all of his creatures from conception in the womb right up until death. We had a lot of interesting conversations around euthanasia from, from the same angle, but that really is for another day. And I think the story that got to me most was actually very early on in my research. But this woman who I call Gwen, that's not her real name, was a female doctor in the 1960s. Reasonably unusual in itself in Britain. And she worked either side of that 1960s change on abortion. And she said that when she started medical school and medical practice, she was in that abortionist murder camp, quite clearly. Because at the time, the political scene in Britain was very charged in a way that I think it still is in America in a way that it's definitely ceased to be over here. Not completely, but there's no binary, there's no news coverage. It's not nearly the same size of a she. She would have put herself in that camp until she had to operate on a woman who had had a backstreet abortion because they were still common because abortion was only recently legalised. The procedure uh, had punctured this woman's uterus and she died on the operating table while Gwen was there attempting to save her life. And Gwen is retired. And she came to my house for this interview and looked me straight in the eye and said, you never forget something like that. And it just really was obvious that she hadn't. And she talked about the fact she had to swap her surgical clogs for Wellington boots. She said that at that point, it ceased to be this abstract issue. It was no longer something where she could go, oh, I'm a Christian and therefore I believe X. It became an issue where she had direct experience, direct, very graphic experience that completely changed her view. And so I describe this in my thesis as a kind of shift from an absolute ethical perspective to a more situational one, whereby for the rest of her career, and Gwen eventually became a, a GP, I wish I'd been her patient, I think she'd have been incredible, and she would basically treat every single abortion case on its own terms. She drew the line, and that was her phrase, put it in, in quotes, uh, drew the line when she was asked towards the end of her career to not meet the patients just to sign the paperwork. That she felt she couldn't do, because there she would lack that experience. She still held on to that value, this idea that there is a sacredness to life. She didn't ever abandon that just because of her experiences. She still considered herself a Christian. That was an absolute and important value to her. But at that point, it had to kind of wrestle alongside other things. And unless Gwen could do that wrestling, she wasn't willing to make a decision. And she referred towards the end of our conversation to women having abortions like they're having a tooth removed. And I think that was an interesting phrase for me because to me, uh, having grown up in an evangelical context, slightly varying colours, the idea that anyone could do that is completely alien. Of course, abortion's wrong. That's what I was brought up to believe. But then I think if you look at the, the kind of extreme pro-lifers, if we think that camp's useful, call it a spectrum or a camp, then actually that is what they see abortion apps, like Brandon said, just killing babies. Just like you just getting rid of an inconvenience and it happens to be murder at the same time. So yeah, Gwen's story really, really touched me. And the fact that it was early on in my, my data was, I think, really important, a bit of a gift, because it really catalyzed my thinking. It made me go straight away, here's someone who, if she had her identity on paper, you know, older woman, Christian evangelical background, 
trained in medicine in the 1960s. Of course you'd assume that she opposed abortion, but it's not that simple. And the number of people who I went into the interview, as I'm afraid all qualitative researchers do, it's a myth that we can divorce ourselves from it, going, oh, I reckon I know what this person believes. And I was consistently wrong. So another guy who I call Ben, he goes to what I would describe as a very conservative evangelical church. We don't have conservative evangelicalism quite in the way that the US has conservative evangelicalism, but it exists. And if you were looking for your kind of pro-life camp, they would be associated with that kind of church in the UK, definitely. And so I had interviewed Ben and we'd got reasonably far through the interview. He'd explained why he rejected euthanasia in quite black and white terms. It's murder, that's prohibited in the Bible, and God can take life. Uh, he'd explained uh, a scenario where he had a same-sex couple uh, come in for a general medical exam in the hope of adopting a baby. And he, as a Christian, and that was his phrase, he said, as a Christian, I don't feel I can sign this paperwork because to him homosexuality is prohibited. The phrase as a Christian came up a lot. I eventually kind of, you know, dropped abortion into the conversation. He'd mentioned it earlier. We hadn't really followed through. I thought, it's come up a lot in the interviews I've done. Let's tug this thread. And I'm so glad I did, not only for my thesis, because it made it a little bit richer, but for my own pride, because there I was assuming that this older white man was against abortion. If he was against homosexuality and against euthanasia, surely it's the true, you know, third piece of the puzzle. And then he came out quite clearly and said, no, absolutely not. There were women I sent for abortions and I would have backed them to the hilt on it. I think that was, yeah, roughly, roughly what he said, quote for quote. And so I think it really pushed me. And again, maybe this come back, comes back to the single issue thing. Conservative is a much more complicated identity than I was giving it credit for, which actually makes me feel a lot better as someone who's gone from a kind of conservative to gradually more open evangelical faith or theology myself. To have this man that I'd already pigeonholed, and I feel guilty about that now in some senses, come and say something that I was so unexpected was, yeah, a surprise, but a refreshing one. And I'm glad it happened because it, sh- it went to show for me that there is, again, so much complexity, so much mess going on around abortion. And this is within, what, a tiny segment of evangelicalism. And you can't generalize from a small sample size. I'm not claiming that you can. Would fail my viva if I did claim that, so let's not go there. But what I am beginning to see is that if there's this much mess already, how much more mess could there be out there? And then one third story, just because she's a bit different to the other two, from a girl I call, I call Martha, who incidentally is about my age. So she's in her late 20s, relatively recently qualified as a doctor. And the reason that her story really stays with me is because she talked about being told what she should believe. And what she was talking about there was going into conversations with other Christians in certain kind of evangelical contexts. And I won't name any names because it wouldn't be fair. And saying that there's almost this ethical assumption that obviously if you're in this group, you believe this about abortion. Obviously, if you're in this group, you believe that we should be railing against the change of euthanasia laws. We should be absolutely not pushing for abortion to be any more relaxed in the UK. And she said she found that very difficult precisely because of that mess that she'd started to experience. She was quite early on in her medical career, but even so, had felt had found herself saying, okay, church and maybe my RSGCSE taught me this. 
But as soon as you put that into the real world of actually doing medicine as a young woman, potentially, that doesn't add up anymore. The circle doesn't square. And the idea of ethical silencing, I think, really troubled me, potentially because I come from a very conservative background where I think having questions made me a little bit troublesome as a teenager to older teenager to young adult to 26 year old. But also, I think because if you do map that onto a larger scale and we start thinking about where else we might have these kind of ethical silencing effects created by this homogenized assumption that everyone around you believes the same thing, that's an incredibly dangerous thing way beyond abortion and way beyond evangelicalism. You know, as an academic who must have you know, some commitment to free speech, we need to think carefully about creating spaces like that where that can happen whether that's in real life or on social media or what have you. Thanks. Thanks, Jay. I, I really appreciate your reflections on the silencing aspect of things as well, because a lot of the time, the conversation that is had about abortion, about single issue voting, uh, and about the, the complexity of these sort of things uh, is reduced to sound bites. It's reduced to short, pithy statements. Like, like you said, you know, because I'm a Christian, dot, 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 there, yeah. there is a presumption of, of in-group bias. There's a presumption of speaking to the crowd, if you like, uh, with these sort of things. And I, I think when it comes to single-issue voting, and this is the, one of my reflections as an Australian on the US uh, scene, is that everything becomes separated out uh, because it's kind of a taboo topic. So you can't talk about abortion in, in great detail. Uh, and certainly from my experience, uh, I did a gap year in the UK and I worked in a um, women's hospital in Bristol. But you, you can't talk about these sort of things in, in a uh, sanitized way. And so it becomes very much this superficial level conversation, uh, which is also then separated out from other conversations which are taboo and superficial level. So you very rarely get conversations which interact both with abortion and with, say, uh, euthanasia. Uh, they tend to be two separate topics which are separated out uh, or for that matter, abortion and economics, or abortion and adoption, abortion mm -hmm. and the support of single parent families or families without, uh, without work, uh, families, this is the Australianism, the families on the dole. I don't know what the Americanism is, uh, but um, I think one of those areas, and I'd be interested in your reflections on this in, in the UK, by separating out all of these things from one another, it means that there's no coherence to the to the issue, and so single issue voting really becomes voting on on one aspect of something that is actually a far greater interconnected and uh, intertwined thing. So, for example, as an Australian, when we think about different issues, we think about things not just as the issue themselves, but uh, how they relate to things like economic policy or um, how it relates to social policies. I'd be interested in your reflections on that. Yeah, you've just said something that really struck me, and I've never thought about this before, but that how unusual it was for me to have these kind of hour, hour and a half long conversations that touched on all those issues. For the doctor, or the doctors at least that I spoke to, these are hugely interconnected things, and they not only interconnect with one another, but they interconnect profoundly with the doctor's faith. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been very interesting for my thesis. I joke in my in an application that I wrote uh, for a job, that um, doctors have this unique ability to answer all of the questions that you want them to answer in an interview in completely the wrong order. 
Um, so you as the interviewer are kind of sat there going, ah, no, what haven't we covered? But it made it much more organic in a way that my kind of partisan questions wouldn't have felt, uh, kind of fostered. And so, you know, you'd talk about abortion and that would kind of go sacredness of life. And then from sacredness of life, um, you'd go euthanasia. And then from euthanasia, you'd go, but what about the kind of quality versus the quantity of life? And then you start talking about what it is that makes people ultimately happy. And then you start talking about love and relationships and social beings and the nature of communication. And so I was having incredibly intense conversations, but they were incredibly wide ranging. The only thing I suppose I wish they'd touched on a little bit more is politics, I suppose. But again, maybe that comes down to the differences between the UK and the US. I don't know that any one of those issues would have been relevant to their political opinions. And certainly I wouldn't have thought to ask the question. Yeah, that's a really interesting yeah. thing to, to, to hear you say, because in an American context, it is so politically charged. And in fact, for many, it is the deciding issue for whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. For, for many people, they're going to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump strictly because of their views about abortion. They don't like the guy. And it doesn't matter because he's against abortion, so got to vote for him. And there's almost this kind of compulsion, this sort of ethical sense of responsibility. I have to vote for him because he is against abortion. And you were just talking about the interconnection of ideas. I think it's also important for us, especially to think about the idea of single issue voting, also to think about the interconnection of policies. Because I think for many people, it's an abstract concept. I'm against it. I'm pro-life. I can't support a candidate who favors it, endorses it, whatever. And yet we don't take a step back to think about how things like increasing minimum wage would decrease abortion or how sex education and access to contraception would decrease abortion or how universal health care would decrease abortion. These sorts of things and thinking about how policies are all interconnected. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Obviously, from a British perspective across the pond about this idea of the interconnection of policies? So two thoughts, one very quick and one, one slightly longer. I could not tell you what any of these significant British parties in the UK thought about abortion policy. And I've spent the last four years researching it. That's fascinating. There you go. And I don't think I'm stupid. You can reflect on that if you want. You're definitely not. Just I'd, say, I'd say it'd be similar here in Australia. Um, yeah. most, the parties don't necessarily have a position on abortion because it is uh, taken for granted. Euthanasia, on the other hand, of course, it, because it's a hot topic, there is much more on. I think I'd be hard pressed to tell you exactly. I know that the, the Tories voting record on euthanasia is relatively conservative, which means that there's that kind of holding your nose thing. Yes, some of the doctors I spoke to kind of said, I can tolerate a Tory government because they're at least not pushing through euthanasia, even if they are doing X, Y, and Z, starving children, etc. But I suppose the second thing is that you talk about kind of policies and the knock-on effects they might have. What surprised me was how little that came up in my research, because these are bright people. They're bright, thoughtful individuals who you know, they know where the bills have got to in Parliament, much more than I did. It was quite embarrassing quite often. And yet, most of them weren't hanging their hat on a particular policy or worrying about a particular knock-on effect. For them, it came down 
to one of two things. It was either holding on for dear life to some part of scripture that for them cut off all other negotiations, usually the sacredness of life and the prohibition against murder. But it was interesting that for other doctors, they would recognize the importance of those issues and yet would go, this is too messy and it can't be that simple. And so the idea is about, you know, changing the number of weeks of gestation at which you allow abortion or changing how sex education is done in school, or I think changing how abortion is taught in school. But those broader issues, you know, addressing poverty, that didn't come up at all. And I try to raise some of these things as, you know, a reasonably didactic form of interviewing. This idea that, you know, do you think if we educated children differently and better, whatever better means, it would be better for the nation or better for the Christian identity of the nation? And those ideas just really weren't where the the conversation stuck in the interviews. Those weren't the things that they found interesting. What really struck me was how little the idea of kind of gestation weeks mattered. You've got this idea that we're taught as kind of GCSE level, so 14 to 16 year olds in the UK, that the key thing is when a baby is actually alive in the womb, it's not the key thing at all. There is a legal limit because of when doctors have a chance of keeping a baby alive. It has nothing to do with anything more or less than that. And so it didn't actually affect these doctors at all. They were going, insofar as I'm employed by the state, if I'm going to ally myself reluctantly or otherwise to the pro-choice camp, then I will stick to that 24-week gestation limit. But it wasn't as though they were going switch that flips on 24 weeks or 28 weeks, which is what it used to be in the UK, that suddenly makes it okay. That really struck me. And so I think that broader kind of policy question, if it was relevant to these doctors, it wasn't the most relevant thing. But I think it's a conversation that needs to happen because you're right. If there's enough complexity in how these individuals are addressing abortion, and they're complex individuals, we're all complex individuals, then how much more complicated when you actually start thinking about that at a national level, even in a teeny tiny context like the UK? Hey, Jenny. So how is the abortion holding in the UK? Is it going up or is it decreasing? Because for some of the research that I was doing for today, I was surprised to see how much it's declined in the United States. And that is in relationship to a lot of policies, but none of those policies are put into place to hold abortion back. They're just all contributing to it. Like things of few unplanned pregnancies, reduced teen sexuality, better health care even uh, adoption being more affordable, all of these things are impacting it. What's going on there in the UK? I'm going to do what the politicians would do and slightly dodge and twist your question. Because the honest answer is that I don't actually know. And I think the reason I don't know is because it didn't matter to the people I interviewed. I'm going to go and look it up before my viva, don't get me wrong. The idea that there was this net number of abortions that might grow or decline didn't come up in any of the interviews. That I did. It's an important issue and it is one I really am feeling slightly sheepish about not knowing. It's the one thing I really should have checked. But again, it's about where the emphasis was for these people. It wasn't about, as a nation, how are we doing on abortion? It was about individuals and it was about safe versus dangerous abortion. So that idea came up an awful lot. And that is going to map, I imagine, quite well onto the US uh, context. They tell me if I'm wrong. Certainly, no one, no one 
with the exception of maybe one person that I interviewed, felt we should go back to a place where abortion was illegal. Not one of them, because they all said it is better now than it was before the 1967 change. Because abortion will always happen. At least let's make it safe. And, and of course, that's, that is one of the issues that we are dealing with at the moment, especially with our, our current Supreme government situation now having a 6-3 majority yeah. in favor of more conservative policies. One of the thoughts on the, on the right is the idea that this might lead to overturning Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that that doesn't make abortion illegal. It, it makes it revert back to where it was pre-Roe, which was a kind of state-by-state thing, which means that abortions will still be legal throughout the country. Certain states will have extra restrictions on it. And frankly, it amounts to adding a commute to somebody's check-ins and, and potential procedure. doesn't actually eliminate the problem. I, I, I think, I wonder if you might be able to address sort of our listeners who who certainly want there to be fewer abortions in a situation in which it is frankly a aspect of our of our reality that abortions do happen and the sad issue there is that it can be safe or it can be unsafe and like you mentioned that initial story about the woman who 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 died that's a that's a very traumatic story to to consider and i think a, a lot of our listeners might not you know, have have much of a category for stories like that because they frankly just want to see planned parenthood defunded and they want to address the supply. They don't really want to address the demand, like we we're talking about the interconnection of policies. They want to address the supply. They want to get rid of abortion clinics and get rid of funding. They, they don't think about the systemic issues, these sorts of things. But what would you say to those who do want to see fewer abortions, certainly no abortions, obviously for many of our listeners, what would you say in light of the reality of our situation and in light of the way things are? How, how, how would you respond? I think first and foremost, it's really important to say that that is not my reality, but I respect that it is that. I'm phrasing this carefully because this is such a difficult issue. But to me, it is absolutely plain that safe abortion is better than dangerous abortion. But that is the context in which I've grown up particularly because the whole state versus federal thing really doesn't make any sense in the UK. So the whole concept of Roe versus Wade dissolving and going back to kind of more localised provision, that really is quite foreign. Although, you know, the tier system we have for COVID at the moment, who knows? But what I think I would say is that I have been on this journey just a little bit, not in the US. I've been on this journey in myself. And I've been on this journey with people who I would never have spoken to had I not done this particular piece of research. And there are reasons I wouldn't have spoken to some of those people. And it is because we prefer to be surrounded by people who think what we think and have the experiences that we have and reinforce those inbuilt biases that we've been talking about, those silences. And so I think without wishing to just go, I think abortion is going to happen until we address economic inequality and misogyny and racial differentiations, all of these things. Those are huge systemic issues. Assuming that we don't solve those in the next decade, abortion's here to stay. So what do you think all of this says to us in the American church? And and I'm also thinking in particular, a lot of the reading that I was doing for today 
It was amazing how it was never directed towards the evangelical churches. It was the leadership in the Roman Catholic churches. And what they were saying and trying to tell their people was, don't be a single issue voter. All of life is sacred. There's so much that needs to be dealt with. Think about all of these other complex issues as well. I didn't know, you know how that's being addressed in the UK either. I would say two things. One, at the end of the day, something has to give. Whether or not you believe that we live in a fallen world, or if you have a different way of viewing it, this world is a broken place. Death happens. Horrible situations happen. Gwen ended up in that operating theatre, covered in blood, because a woman decided she had to make a tragic decision, and it had a tragic consequence. You can't live in an ideal world. What you can do is try and expand your horizons. And I had, this is my second point, I had so much to learn when I started my PhD about what I felt about abortion and what I felt about other things. And I was deeply uncomfortable in a lot of the conversations that I had. It was really interesting from a methodological perspective because I had to sit there and be the good interviewer and not react. And that's a difficult thing, perhaps. But I was on my own journey from, I think, as I mentioned, really quite conservative evangelical upbringing through to now, which is a kind of messy, vaguely open evangelical. I don't like living in an echo chamber. And I was as a teenager when it came to ethics, medical ethics, living in an echo chamber. And I'm so glad I broadened it because at the end of the day, the difference between the people that I interviewed and myself was all about experience, all about experiential knowledge. And I could do one of two things with that. I could go, that's their experience and it doesn't matter to me. Or I could go, these are things which happen and they have implications for what I think. And I feel like I understand the world and other people better for having had those conversations. They were uncomfortable, but I wouldn't go back and change the journey that I've been on. And again, it's a distance that I still have because I am coming at this as a researcher. But if you are looking at abortion, and saying, at the end of the day, all I want is to reduce the number of abortions, I would say, go and talk to someone who works in medicine. Or if you don't want to do that, there's a guy in Britain called Adam Kay, who is a comedian, um, and he's written two books. The first one is called This Is Going To Hurt. It was at the top of all the bestseller lists, just as I was going, you know what's really interesting? Medical people's lives. And it's an autobiography. Um, and it is very funny, but it's very heartbreaking. But he recently released a teeny tiny little sequel called The Night Shift Before Christmas. It's a centimetre thick. And I read it in an evening. It's, it's honestly so funny. He's a really good natured guy. But the critical thing for me about Adam Kay in relation to this podcast is that Adam Kay is a secular Jew. That's how he describes himself. He was brought up in a Jewish family, but makes it quite clear that I think at one point in this is going to hurt. He talks about praying to a God he doesn't believe in. He doesn't believe in God. There's a section in his second book, Night Shift Before Christmas, that comes with a trigger warning. And I was kind of raising my eyes going, okay, you talked about some pretty horrible stuff in the pages before this. What's so special about this section? And he talks about doing his first abortion. It's not pleasant reading. There's a reason it has a trigger warning. The emotion he manages to lay in those three, four pages cut right through me. And this is someone who as I say, had spent four years thinking about abortion on a pretty much daily basis. And for me, it was the fact that Adam Kay doesn't believe in God and yet was approaching abortion 
in much the same way as all of these evangelical Christians that I had interviewed, not all of them, but a good number of them, and going, this is heartbreaking, but it is better this way. If you read nothing else on abortion, read those three, four pages in the middle of the night shift before Christmas and tell me if they don't make you think again about the fact that abortion is complicated. Abortion is not a partisan issue. And abortion at the end of the day comes down to experiences which many of us will be spared mercifully, but which happen and which really do affect the nature of the conversations I think we need to be having. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful that it personalizes the conversation uh, because so often, uh, as we've been talking about in this podcast for the last few weeks, our conversations about politics are so impersonal. They border on the nature of economic policy. Uh, so John mentioned earlier, Republicans or single issue voting here tends to focus on supply side, supply side of, of it um, rather than demand side. And I mean, even the language of that is in terms of economic policy, uh, do we enable the supply side of a business or do we focus on the demand side from the consumer? And I think that takes away the reality of the decisions that have to be made here. Uh, the, the stories that I hear uh, coming home not just about abortion, but about lots of medical ethics. Focus on the fact that people are put in really horrible situations and have to make really hard decisions. And as I said, not just on abortion, on all sorts of medical ethical issues and really humanizing it and really focusing on the human nature of the conversation is something that I think we do fairly poorly in our political discourse, but is so critical. Thank you. So one question that we've had, we've kind of asked in these series of podcasts on faith and politics and trying to kind of push through the partisan divide that we suffer so uh, horribly here in the U.S. We really kicked off with uh, our first episode with Maeve, which talked about how compromise is just a necessary reality when it comes to politics. We always got to give something. And I know Michael and Chris, you, you guys also chatted about this as well, but I think abortion becomes this, at least for America, this, you know, the buck stops here. Like this is the, you can't compromise on this because it, you know, for Christians, it's life or for pro-choice people. No, this is about women's rights. Not to, you know, compromise is is normally a bad word, but in, in terms of, you know, living within a very complex world, living in a society where we always are, have to give things right? We have to give ourselves to one another. And there is just normal and, you know, good and wholesome compromise that it takes to make our world run. It is necessary. But I guess, how much should we compromise? I think Michael Falione in our second episode talked a bit about well, you can't compromise much with a cannibal. And I think that's a very helpful and fitting analogy. But I guess when it comes to abortion, how much should, should Christians compromise? Is it okay for a Christian to vote for someone who likes abortion? Or is that, is that too much compromise? Or is it okay if you vote for someone who is against abortion, but they don't pass any laws that limit abortion? You know, is that, is that an okay compromise? Yeah, I mean, there's all this type of compromise. And I guess if, if you just want to, from a UK perspective, just kind of think about how much you think Christians should compromise on this issue. I'm really glad that Maeve was the one who said compromise is a necessary fact of life because anything I can do to agree with Maeve Sherlock is a good thing in my book. Maeve's great. I'm not here to tell anyone how to vote in the UK, let alone in the US. 
But on the question of how much can a Christian compromise, the answer, and again, I'm probably avoiding the question, is it depends on the individual. I actually have a whole chapter in my thesis entitled Compromising, which goes through examples of ways in which the doctors I interviewed felt they had to make compromises. And usually that meant specifically compromising their faith for the sake of their work. And what I frame that as in my thesis is a kind of something they saw as negative but necessary. You know, they didn't like the fact that there were occasions where, despite the fact they really don't want to be the person signing off abortion paperwork, they felt they had to be, even if it was a one-off. I had a couple of examples of that. Ben's story about feeling he had to choose between being a doctor and being a Christian when he was faced with this same-sex couple who wanted to adopt. Uh, he talks about bringing his union rep and the union rep basically saying, if you don't sign that paperwork, I'm not going to defend you in court. These people were making compromises and they found them difficult. I try and say all they're doing is trying to wear two identities, in this case, doctor and Christian, that usually marry up beautifully. A lot of what they do is beautifully, you know, healing the sick, showing compassion, caring for the, the poor or the widow, the outcast. But there are moments when those two things bump heads. And that is the reality of, I think, a fallen reality. Uh, the way that a lot of the medics I spoke to framed it was this idea of being in the world, but not of the world. That came up in almost every interview that I did. If I were an evangelical, and I am, if I were living in America, I would bring it down again to that messy reality. If you have a choice between someone who might bring in some legislation to potentially reduce abortion, that, for me, is not a convincing enough argument to say, let's compromise on the rest of Trump's record. You've already talked about the idea of holding your nose and voting. As a Brit with no experience of the US context, please try and get past that. Would I therefore say that it's suitable to compromise on something as significant as abortion? I can't say that for you. But I can say that not only is there a world beyond single-issue voting, there is a mess out there that you can't see that isn't as simple as sound bites in a badly conducted debate. I would say vote for someone whose broader record has a chance of dealing with a little bit of those broader social inequalities that are actually, for me, as much the root of the situation we're in as legislation. Because the world in Britain, when the legislation changed in 1967, sorry, England and Wales, it changed in Scotland different. Ireland's a whole different thing. 1967 and 2020 are two vastly different contexts, and yet we have the same legislation. The nuts and bolts have changed a little. The paperwork's definitely changed. The expectations have changed. The point is that legislation is not the be-all and end-all. A lot of it comes down to individuals, to societal attitudes and to, to broader structural concerns. And so for me, reducing your entire political worldview to an issue that I think no one really fully understands, to me, that isn't a good way to compromise. If it's a compromise at all, I don't think it's a good one. You've really hit on something there, which is that in a lot of these situations, we need to be thinking about our own ethics, our own personal engagement with the questions at hand rather than devolving them to the purview of a group. And 
this comes back to something which we talked about a couple of weeks ago is that I find it really weird as an Australian that Americans have only two real political parties to be able to vote for. How does this even work? So it makes it very difficult at that point uh, because you only have one of two effective choices. Let's not get into how the politics works in, in the States because I don't think anyone can even really understand that, even Americans. But I think too often uh, Christians devolve our personal responsibility to the overarching issues of a political group rather than uh, individual uh, engagement. Uh, and we do this in the ch- evangelical church as well on matters of ecclesiology, on matters of, of faith as well. Um, even though as evangelicals, we're, our big thing is personal uh, sanctification, personal change, personal responsibility, personal individual salvation. Too often we say on many matters of conscience and many matters of, of theology even, that yes, we're all for these things, but you need now need to toe the party line. That's absolutely the sorts of things I would be, I would have come out of my PhD saying a month ago and, and would still think now. Um, if I could, you know, take one thing away from my PhD that was kind of personal rather than academic, it would be the value of having difficult conversations in a loving way. That is an incredibly difficult thing to do, incredibly difficult, particularly in a world where we're only allowed to speak via Zoom. But unless you are having those conversations, you are actually reinforcing a really dangerous situation. That ethical silencing I discussed earlier is part of it, but also this idea, yeah, I like it, towing the party line. There was another woman I spoke to, uh, I call her Sarah in my thesis, who described having only one person at her church she actually felt she could discuss abortion with. Not because abortion was preached on, not because anyone from the front, as she put it, uh, was saying anything, but because there was this silent assumption that you just agreed that abortion was bad and that you therefore didn't think about it any further and that to me was deeply frightening as an academic and as a person and so I've been not going out of my way to have difficult conversations because that would be ridiculous particularly in the time of zoom but trying to overcome some of my natural kind of inhibitions against those conversations you know if someone says okay abortion doesn't often come up in conversation but when it does Rather than me going, oh, I'm too frightened of this conversation, I'm just going to let them assume they know what I believe, going, actually, let me tell you about my PhD, but also let me tell you about the things I've learned from my PhD. And academia has been guilty of precisely that kind of line towing in the past, but it doesn't have to be. And the church has been guilty of it in the past, but it doesn't have to be. And the only way that's really going to change is if individuals are kind of willing to go, I love you. I accept that we think different things. Let's have a conversation about this that doesn't descend into name calling and finger pointing. Yeah. And thank you, Jenny, for modeling that behavior with us and and chatting about your perspective and this perspective of others that you interviewed and, and thinking through this very heavy and difficult topic and complex one. And we appreciate your perspective in the way that you outlined a lot of the complexities for us. Just really appreciate having you on today. No, it's been really good to be here and it's been good to crystallize some of those thoughts. It's good to reflect on, you know, something that you invest a lot of brain power in in a kind of emotional way. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been great. Look forward to hearing the outcome of your Viva. All the best for that in the coming little while. And thanks, Jenny, too, for your willingness to have all those difficult conversations with people. Thank you so much. Thanks for giving me an outlet.
If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.